welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 29th of October 2018 and this is episode 87. On today's programme, I talk to Jerry Barson about a book he and his colleague John Babb have just written on conscientious objectors in Mid-Staffordshire and the Black Country during the Great War. I spoke to Jerry from his home in the West Midlands. Jerry, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Now, we're going to talk um, today about your book on conscientious objectors in Staffordshire and the Black Country during the Great War. How did you become interested in conscientious objectors? Well, first of all, the Military Services Act 1916 provided for tribunals through which men could claim exemption from conscription. And in 1921, the government ordered that case files from all these tribunals, bar two, one in uh, the south of England and one in Scotland, uh, should be destroyed. A few years ago, Staffordshire County Record Office discovered 3,500 case files stashed away in uh, a garret, I think, in the old county hall. They had the foresight to seek funding for these files to be properly archived and digitised, and then sought volunteers to help with the task. So many of us volunteered to do this job, they created a number of mini-projects. And John Babb, who is a member of the Society uh, of Friends, and myself, separately volunteered to work on the conscientious objective files. John's interest, apart from being a Quaker, was that he's also working on a similar project for the Society of Friends for the Second World War. And my interest has always been social history, but also a perpetual search to learn about people and what motivates them. And I think also, like many people of my age, I have little or no serious knowledge of the First World War. So that was what drove me to be interested and to think that a study of conscientious objectors might teach me something that I didn't already know. So why do you feel a book was required on conscientious objectors in Mid-Staffordshire and the Black Country in particular? This project at the uh, County Records Office took about a year and a half, uh, doing at least half a day every week and sometimes more. And towards the end, I felt we put in so much work and we'd learn so much, we shouldn't just leave it all on the, on the shelf. So over a cup of coffee in the Gatehouse Theatre in Stafford, I suggested to John that uh, we might look at developing this further, and he agreed that we had created a unique body of work that should be made for more available. We approached the County Records Office, who were only too happy for us, if you like, to privatise our work, And so we started what became another two years of work to develop the book. We hope we've produced what is an insight into what it's like to be a conscientious objector developing their case and deciding how they're going to live with the consequent tribunal decisions. We, We don't take sides. We have tried to present the cases as objectively as we can, including the role of tribunal members and the situations that they also found themselves in, both with fellow members and with the communities in which they lived. But to us, looking back now, we believe the size of the find at Stafford, the 3,500 files, has enabled us to create what is likely to be a unique record of these events, really across the UK, because 
Although some other quantities of papers have been found in various uh, places in Warwickshire and in Northamptonshire, none of them are of the volume that we found that were found in Stafford. And so we think we've done something a little bit special. Right, before we get into the detail of individuals and what happened to them, we need to look at how the system operated uh, and, the, and the system of tribunals that were set up in 1916. So with yeah. the introduction of conscription in England, Wales and Scotland and not Ireland, the government bought uh, a system of tribunals to consider cases made by men who sought exemption from compulsory military service on the grounds of conscience. What grounds would the government consider for granting their request? Well, the Act contained seven grounds for appealing against being conscripted. And, and it's probably worth pointing out, because not everyone realises this, that when the Act came into force in um, 1916, everyone between the ages of... Or, or, sorry, every man between the ages of 18 and 41, single man, that is, was considered to be enlisted. So even if they were still waiting working in their normal jobs and awaiting papers from the army, they were still conscripted. They'd still been enlisted into military service. So there were seven grounds for appeal from that. The first was if your job was considered uh, to be in the national interest and therefore you should remain in your present job. Second was that national interest be that you should be in work other than military service. Uh, the third one was whether or not you were in education or training for work, and it was in the national interest for you to continue that training. Next was if serious hardship would result from enrolment due to exceptional financial or business obligations or domestic uh, position. Another one was ill health or infirmity. And another one was if the principal and usual occupation of the person was one of those included in a list of occupations certified by the government for exemption. And this was generally known as the starred list, in other words, working in uh, industries that were important to the war effort. And finally, there was an appeal on the ground of conscientious objection to the undertaking of combatant service. Now, there's just a little bit of background to the whole of that, which is that if you study the political uh, context for the um, Military Service Act of 1916, it's obvious that uh, the Asquith government uh, had a, was going to have a great deal of trouble getting its way through its own party, quite apart from any other parties in the House of Commons. Many, many Liberals objected to conscription for a number of reasons largely connected with personal freedom. So there had to be some grounds on which uh, people could appeal other than, if you like, uh, industrial and economic grounds. Otherwise, uh, there were many people in the government or in the government's party that would not support the act. So a great deal of effort had gone into creating the circumstances in which an act for conscription could be brought in, the very first time ever in this country, but there had to be some clauses that would provide for people to be exempted, and this one of conscientious objection was perhaps the most important, although the least well-defined 
and the most difficult for tribunals to assess the, if you, if you like, the, the integrity of when a balance came before them. To administer the system the government set up under the 1916 Act, they introduced a nationwide system of tribunals, which you've just uh, referred right. to. How were these structured and organised? Well, this, this was a mammoth operation. <laughs> um, at local level, there were 2,086 local tribunals covering each local registration district. The members of these tribunals were appointed locally, uh, but they, these local tribunals were then supported by 83 county appeals tribunals who heard appeals from those uh, unhappy or dissatisfied with the decision they got from their local tribunal. The members of the county appeal tribunals were appointed by the Crown. Finally, there was a central tribunal intended to deal with complex and difficult cases based in London, and its purpose also was to establish case law for the guidance of the local and appeal tribunals below them. As an appellant, you could only get to the central tribunal with the consent of the appeal tribunal who'd heard your case. Now, there's a couple of important points about tribunals. First, this was because this was the first time we'd had conscription. It was completely new territory for everyone. The government, tribunal members, the army. So everybody was uh, finding their feet, as it were. But second, the tribunal system was organized and administered by the local government board and not the army. So it could be seen to be independent from the military. However, on every tribunal, there was a military representative appointed by the army. And these later caused problems when the army was very frustrated by the delays and reduced enrollment they perceived was being caused by the tribunal system. And on occasions, the army instructed its representatives to be more aggressive in trying to dismiss appeals. However, overall, the independence was, I think, generally accepted. Uh, but there were a lot of problems in getting it up to work in this new and totally untested and untried environment. So when we look at the tribunals within Staffordshire and the Black Country area, obviously that you've been dealing with in your book, how, how were these local tribunals staffed and who actually sat on them? The members were local people, appointed locally, uh, under guidance from the local government board about the sort of people they should be looking for. Most commonly, they were councillors, they were magistrates, or local business people known for their sense of public duty. The local government board did remind the tribunals that uh, the working classes were likely to be very closely concerned with the work of the tribunals. That's to say, if they were going to be mostly people from the working classes who were likely to be appealing their, their conscription. So in the LGB's view, it was imperative that they should be represented. Now, in industrial areas where there were already labor and socialist councillors and so on, that wasn't too much of a problem. And you'll see that, for example, if you look at the tribunals in Stoke-on-Trent. But in a few cases also, local union officials became members. The LGB interestingly said that uh, there may be circumstances in which women could be members of the tribunals, and if so, they were to be appointed. But we have no records in this area 
of women being appointed to the tribunals. These people had no training. They had only the guidance that they got through the many circulars issued by the LGB. It was very common for local landowners and retired military officers also to feature on tribunals, either in their own rights as, as local uh, dignitaries, as it were, or as local councillors, or quite often as military representatives. So, for example, in this area, uh, Lord Hatherton, who came from a family that owned uh, uh, a lot of coal mines around here and was a local dignitary, also sat for a time as a military representative on uh, one of the local tribunals. The appeal tribunals, on the other hand, appointed by the Crown, featured quite a few county councillors, but also, again, uh, local dignitaries such as local baronets and uh, people of that ilk, and many of whom proved to be very compassionate to conscientious objectors. And that was uh, quite a, a surprise to some people, I guess. Local tribunals were supported also by local officials. So the clerk to the council was usually the person questioning appellants on behalf of the tribunal. And since people in these positions usually had a legal background, this gave tribunals a huge advantage over untrained and in some cases poorly educated applicants. But it also caused issues uh, on the tribunal. So, for example, on the Canuck Tribunal, the clerk was Charles Loxton, a solicitor from Walsall, and also on that tri tribunal, as I've just mentioned, was Lord Hatherton. So sometimes there could be quite a powerful lobby against other members of the tribunal who might not have quite their skills or their self-confidence. Loxton was an interesting individual because he had lost his son on the front in May 1915, who had left Oxford to go and fight and was killed not long after um, he was sent to the front. His lawyer, Loxton's lawyer's way of explaining conscientious objection to his tribunal members before they had their first such case is given in the book, and it reveals both his duty to explain as dispassionately as he could what was meant uh, by conscientious objection. But coming through the text, as I'm sure anyone who reads it will see, is, is the terrible grief of the loss of his son only a few months before that. And his son uh, is remembered in a very remarkable window in the uh, church in the middle of Cannock. So when we look at the, the number of cases brought before the tribunals in Staffordshire and the Black Country, how many of them actually involved uh, people seeking exemption on the grounds of conscience? Nationally, the figure was about 16,000 or 2% of all the people who were seeking exemptions of one sort or another. And of the 3,500 papers we have in Staffordshire, indeed, our figure is almost exactly the same we looked at about 70 cases. Although the issue of conscientious objection has attracted a lot of attention over the years and still does, they were not a significant quantity in the overall scheme of things. But as I said before, the, the most difficult thing with uh, uh, issues of conscience was to try and assess the integrity of the case that was being made by the appellant. 
it's not as easy as, for example, looking at whether or not um, someone's family business might collapse if they were recruited into the army. And so you can make a, a financial judgment about what might happen. Here were people use, claiming that they should not be brought into the army because they did not believe in killing fellow human beings. How do you assess whether or not someone who says that to you is being uh, genuine or whether this is something they've just thought up as a way of avoiding um, army service? In the view of John and myself, all the files that we read for the people who had uh, claimed on grounds of conscience were, to us, very genuine. We didn't believe we saw any cases of uh, people being, what should we say, disrespectful or being in any way trying to use conscience just as a means of getting out of it when, in fact, they didn't hold such views. However, it was the job of the tribunals to try and test that. And the, the title of the book, So Who Does Want to Kill Anyone?, is in fact one of the questions that used to be asked by Charles Loxton, for example, of anybody claiming that they wanted to be uh, exempted on grounds of conscience. Because the point he was making was that a lot of people didn't want to kill anyone else, but believed it was their national duty to join up and be part of the army in this struggle. So that it was a very difficult scenario to, to deal with. And by and large, we, in our view, the tribunals locally dealt with it fairly well. There were one or two cases at local tribunal that we thought maybe were dealt with a bit harshly, but the compassion at appeal tribunal level that I mentioned a little bit earlier did come to the fore, and quite a few of those were uh, changed when the case went to tribunal. Just a couple of other points, if I may, about, about the size of the workload. When tribunals first started in 1916, by the end of June of that year, there were almost 750,000 nationally had applied for exemptions. And in the same period, slightly more than that, 777,000 had joined up. So there were huge backlogs created in the tribunal system. There was a great big gap in the army's recruitment plans, and it took a long time to sort that out. By the end of October 16, there were something like 1.2 million cases in the tribunal system. The local government board asked the tribunals to work harder to clear the backlog. And by May 1917, the number of exemptions had reduced to less than 900,000. So again, these issues of a new system, people having to learn on the job, as it were, caused what could have been some very severe problems for recruitment had they not got it resolved uh, by early 1917. So when you look at the cases brought before tribunals based on conscience, how many of them were actually accepted, uh, quotes, as genuine um, examples of conscience by the tribunals? Uh, about of the 70 we looked at, about 50. 20 were dismissed in total, but about 50 were accepted. But that's not the whole story. Many of those uh, appellants were seeking total exemption and that was hardly ever granted. Instead, what they were granted was exemption 
from combatant service, which meant they didn't go on the front line, but they were still required to take up non-combatant duties uh, in one form or another. So although uh, 50 of the cases were accepted, many of those uh, appellants would regard their, uh, the, the judgments as uh, unsuccessful because they did not get the total exemption that they were looking for. Now we turn to look at individuals who actually applied for exemption uh, under the Military Service Act in, in Staffordshire. What, what were the bases that people actually gave for, for not wanting to participate in the army? Well, first of all, there were religious objections, obviously. The first one that people might think of is that they, the Society of, of Friends, the Quakers, would be claiming exemption. But in fact, in fact, there were very few Quakers in Staffordshire. They had very few meeting rooms in the county at that time. And the biggest religious group that objected uh, to military service were Christadelphians. And they had uh, very many... Uh, ecclesia or, or churches in Staffordshire and they had a very organized system for the submission of uh, certificates which uh, certified attendance at these ecclesia and they were usually granted non-combatant service but that was a serious problem for them because they were the largest group who fully expected they were going to get total exemption and later in the war the Central Tribunal did find a way of granting full exemption for them. But not all local tribunals went, went along with that, and exemption from combatant service only was largely the norm. Christadelphians had been against uh, war for many, many years, obviously, and their views were well represented in, uh, in this area, for example, by a man called Clement Aspin who told the Stafford Tribunal that all, and I quote, all carnal warfare is inconsistent with the Christian faith. And they had many other texts as well, which they would give uh, to support their case. The Church of England and the Methodists uh, also sought exemption, or many of them sought exemption because of their religious beliefs. But the significant difference was that they were on their own. Their churches um, offered little or no support to their members' appeals. For example, Spencer Lockett in Eccleshall, uh, who was um, a primitive Methodist, um, sought support from his local Methodist minister, who wrote a letter to the, to the tribunal, but all he said was that Spencer was a good chap, and it gave no support to his interpretation of Christian beliefs at all. In another quite complicated case that went to appeal. Cyril Jarman was training to be an Anglican minister, and there is a letter on his file from the Bishop of Lichfield that shows the bishop to be in support of conscription, even for those who were in training to be Anglican priests. In addition to the religious ones, by 1916, of course, we had substantial trade union and socialist Labour Party groups in many industrialized areas, and Burton-on-Trent was one of them. Political objections to the war, when you read the papers, really centered on two main themes. One was the internationalization of labor and the immorality of fighting against your fellow workers in another part of the world. The other was the belief that wars 
were the weapon with which capitalism managed to keep the world in check. Vale Rawlings, who was a trade union organiser and a fascinating character, who'd run up against the government as early as 1914, organising industrial disputes. Uh, when he applied for exemption in 1916, he wrote, and I quote, war was only a means of dividing workers against each other. So these were the main claims that people used to, uh, as their grounds for uh, objecting to military service. So if a tribunal accepted a person had a genuine case based on conscience, what options did the tribunals have in terms of what they did with those individuals? There's an interesting point you, you raise with this question, first of all, that I, perhaps I should have mentioned earlier. When I said earlier that tribunal members and so on had no training and only had the guidance of the uh, local government board circulars, Despite that, they were in a, what I would describe as a quasi-judicial uh, position because whatever they said was law. So if they said you um, were not granted total exemption but you could have, you, you should do some activity in a non-combatant service, that was what you had to do, although they could discuss with you and you could offer various ways of doing that. The first port of call, um, that had been established as, as part of this whole process was the army had a non-combatant corps. It was set up as a military unit, had uniforms, had operated under army discipline, etc. But members did not carry arms and they did not serve on the front line. Their jobs were labouring, building roads, other menial tasks. But there were a, a number of problems with the non-combatant corps. First of all, there were many, and the Christadelphians and most trade union and socialist uh, objectors uh, fall in this category, many simply refused to wear military uniforms or accept military discipline at all. But another problem was that the initial training units for the non-combatant corps were run by regular soldiers. And across the country, there are many stories of brutality in uh, army prisons and um, amongst the training of people who had agreed to go into the non-combatant corps. But there were other options as well. Um, so some, for example, were quite happy to go into the Royal Army Medical Corps or the veterinary service, because uh, let's not forget there were millions of horses in the First World War as well, and veterinary service was a very important support service to the front line. People who opted for those kinds of units, unfortunately, sometimes did find themselves uh, on the front line and becoming involved in the fighting. And on reflection, when you look at the role of the medics or the uh, veterinary support people, it, that's uh, hardly surprising. It's almost inevitable that that would happen. Some also could go into the Friends Ambulance Unit, which was largely uh, considered to be a, a Quaker service, but in fact there were others in there as well who were not Quakers. But there were other occupations. Working on the land uh, was one. Working in certain factories, including making shells and helping the war effort, uh, was another. The starred list of occupations were all also available. And some interesting jobs, for example, farriers were needed by the agricultural uh, communities and in counties like Staffordshire where there was big agricultural involvement, these were also roles that they could undertake. 
eventually for what you might call the die-hard conscientious objectors, the Home Office came up with some other work schemes that enabled them to be usefully employed during their detention as well. So if an individual um, refused non-combatant corps RMAC, what actually happened to them? What was the, what was the options available to a tribunal for somebody who refused to wear military uniform or serve in any capacity? Well, if they refused, if, if the army, if a big problem, if the tribunal had said uh, non-combatant service only and uh, you, you're going to the um, non-combatant corps, if they refused everything and just didn't turn up or report for service, then the police would pick you up. They would hand you over to the military and they would then uh, take you under military discipline and the very first time you refused an order, uh, you would be presented for court-martial. From there, you would normally get two years hard labor, and uh, when that period was up, um, the whole cycle was likely to start again. If you, again, were a die-hard conscientious objector, and you were in this system and you were perceived to be such, then you were quite likely to be sent to Wormwood Scrubs. And if you got into Wormwood Scrubs, almost automatically your case would be heard by the Central Tribunal and they would decide if you were a really genuine conscientious objector. If, you, if they came to that decision, then you were likely to be put into one of the home office schemes I mentioned a short while ago where you would be in detention, but you would be doing some work uh, of a of national importance, which was usually connected with the land, but not exclusively, because these schemes were run at prisons like Dartmoor, of course, where there wasn't much industry around, so they, they were working on the land rather than anything else. So that was what was likely to happen to you. It was, if you didn't get to Wormwood Scrubs and your case wasn't considered sufficiently genuine that you should get onto the Home Office schemes, then your life was going to be very difficult for a few years. And how did the local community within Staffordshire regard conscientious objectors? That's a very interesting one because it seems almost in some cases to be very, in one sense, to be very split. So, for example, if you look in Cannock, um, all the tribunals were written up in the local paper very objectively, very in very detailed form, and as you'll see we mentioned in the book, we have quoted from some of those quite, quite a lot because they are a pretty objective assessment of what was going on. On the other hand, if you go across to Burton-on-Trent, you'll see that despite the fact there were a lot of political uh, objections and a lot of trade union organisation, Burton-on-Trent, quite a radical workforce there, uh, the local papers were absolutely vitriolic in their con condemnation of conscientious objectors. Uh, in 1917, for example, the Burton Mail ran an editorial about the Independent Labour Party in which it said it had become the refuge of eccentrics, pacifists, vegetarians, clothes and hair quacks, swarms of abnormal and hysterical persons. And yet, in, this was a town with a very radical trade union political movement, as I've said, 
and many, a ground, many gra appeals on the grounds of conscience. And we think there's still a lot to be discovered and assessed about exactly how this played out in Burton between what was clearly a paper holding very, very uh, authoritarian views about this and a very radical, uh, what seems to have been a very radical working class. And uh, there's still work to be done on how that played out and we're just looking at how we might get involved in some of that work as we speak. And finally, Jerry, where can people get your book from? They can buy it direct from us at bbbn staffs at hotmail.com. It's um, 9.99 off the shelf or £12.50, including postage and packing, and we normally aim to turn them around in about 24 hours. And I gather you're also talking to the local branch of the WFA in March. Uh, yes, the West Midlands branch uh, meet in Sutton Coldfield, I think. And uh, I've got an, I'm addressing or talking to them at their March meeting. So I look forward to seeing anybody who's heard this and wants to know a bit more. Look forward to seeing you there. And I should just say to, to listeners that details of that are available on the WFA website under the section on branch events. Jerry, thank you very much for your time. Great pleasure to talk to you, Tom. Thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman, and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>